I'm going to ask that you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, as we continue in this series, and we are starting to wind it down just a bit. In fact, uh, verse 11, as we'll cover today, brings us to a bit of a closure to a particular section in Peter related to suffering. And even though that's, it's a little odd because the very next section actually deals with Christian suffering, it actually begins to lean into summation as the book comes to a bit of a close. But we'll be in here a a few more weeks and uh, we'll have Easter. And so, so looking forward to that. So uh, be making plans and and also be thinking of those that you may be able to invite uh, with you uh, during that time of year. Now, many of you know that our family homeschools, we actually made that choice many, many years ago. And uh, I think our, boy, our children were just entering into really the first of grades, I guess kindergarten is when we started. And we were living in Memphis, Tennessee at the time. And initially I can say that it was mostly a a prudential decision, a practical decision for where we were living at the time. But, you know, quickly for us, at least it became a... uh, a thing that we really believed in. We really liked the idea of being able to communicate and convey a worldview and to do that the best we could. We have just, as a little insider, we have never really been those that that push or promote some kind of exit strategy from public schools. I think that the only thing you'll find with me, passionate-wise, as far as parents and school is where there are dads, you need to own the worldview development in your house. You need to keep watch over what your children are learning and don't just assume that they'll be able to filter everything that they hear one way or the other. And uh, and of course, we also have, uh, there'll be many single moms who act as a head of household as well. And so the most passionate thing would be certainly make sure the gospel is really the organization, so to speak, around your house, both for the filter of what you think and know and learn and also how you live. But we've continued that choice. And one of the choices or one of the freedoms that that affords us with that choice is that we are then able to give emphasis to different things that we are passionate about, especially things like the arts. And um, to varying degrees, we, in our family, we all love music to varying degrees. And to varying degrees as well, we all love art. Now, some in our family are uh, more than dad good. Now, that phrase, in case you don't know what dad good is, that's the, that's the kind of good that is the equivalent of you looking at, now this, I'm not mentioning this, Brandon, if you happen to be watching, I'm not saying this because um, of the new birth, but dad good is the equivalent of looking at any child anywhere and saying how beautiful the baby is regardless. Because we know not all babies are really all that beautiful, but we say it because it's kind and it's sweet and it's good. And we should. And dads do much the same thing when it comes to the, their children's art. It's such a beautiful stick figure. And, and yet it's, it's just beautiful, honey. And then you just have to stop because there's just literally nowhere else to go. Even the most creative of verbal artists cannot access enough language and vocabulary to describe anything except simply affirming that they are your child that you may wonder where they got that lack of any ability whatsoever. And if your spouse is not around, then you can at least internally blame them if they, well, actually just publicly if they're not around. Um, But whatever the case is, I do know that we have a couple of kids that actually are more than just dad good. So for instance, they've shown what they've done to others and gone, wow. Um, Other people have said that's actually really good. And they're not just being nice. They're not just looking at ugly babies and saying, oh, beautiful kid. 
But one of the things that this text actually reminded me of today related to art had to do with particular types of medium. And I'm not an, an artist. I mean, I, I actually used to draw a ton. And I never really got too much into different mediums and what they accomplished. But I have found out that over time, one of the things that I actually probably enjoy the most looking at when it comes to art, I mean, I can appreciate sculpting and all that kind of stuff. But really, I really enjoy acrylics on canvas because there's something about acrylics that I just think is really beautiful. I don't have the ability to work with it like some of my daughters do, um, but I really like how it looks. And when I go to museums, and it's not that often, but when I do, I really like that there's something about it because it's not flat, meaning whether it's through colors or even through textures because of how quickly it dries and also how thick it is, that you can actually create dimensions. The colors are very rich. In fact, because they dry, it dries so quickly, it doesn't simply, it almost dries in a sense within itself so it maintains color instead of being diluted into the, the platform or that canvas itself, and yet it will hold. And so it's one of the best things you can put on a canvas and it's beautiful. In fact, I have some samples of artwork that I want you to see just simply to see some diversity. So this first one up here was made by Randy Honorla and it's simply a tree, but it's on canvas and it's acrylics. Now we don't have really some kind of true, you know, four or five K HD kind of technology here, but you can understand that if you were to see this in other, some other kind of screen that it pops and the colors are beautiful and you can tell what it is. You're looking up at a tree, okay? This next one is by Michael Wagner and he painted the great philosopher, Bill Murray. But a different take on it. So you can actually see that with acrylics, even though the first one is, it, it, it almost gets into abstraction, but here you have almost a bit of realism, but it's the same medium. Still acrylic, still on canvas. This next one is by Yelena York, this butterfly. And I love, and she actually did this all by hand. So she didn't use any um, helps at all in drawing the diamonds or any of the images. So again, same medium, but just different textures, different colors, and really even different approach all uh, completely to art. I mean, it's just beautiful. This last one is probably my second favorite because the last one I'll show you in a minute is my favorite, but my second favorite would be by Ellen Fuller. And this is called Wood, as you might understand. But look how, I mean, this looks like a photograph that you would have taken and simply put a black and white filter on it on any number of, of creeks or, or riversides, even in our area of Pennsylvania. It's amazing that she just simply decided that she was going to use just blacks and whites and simply then massaged it the whole time. And it came out looking incredibly realistic, almost like a photograph. Okay, now this last one is my favorite and it is by an artist named L. And for those of you who don't know, this is Grogu, who is also Baby Yoda from the Mandalorian series, if you are a geek, a sci-fi geek like we are. And um, L is probably one of my favorite artists uh, because I know where she got most of her abilities and it was from her father. And uh, L actually stands for Elizabeth Lumpkin, but it is acrylics. And I love how she has, uh, I just, we've, in our house, I think this is most of our favorites of, of what she's done. And she's done a lot of work. And so I'm going to get it off the screen because I'm embarrassing her at this moment. But I did ask her permission if I could, but she was uh, very curious as to why in the world would you even need to do that. But here's what I mean. 
Here's why I share with you those illustrations of, of artwork. It's simply because in many ways where we are in this text, it really shows us that in a sense, suffering becomes a canvas where when God paints and works in the lives of believers, that grace and is, becomes more beautiful, that the, in a sense, mercy pops. Grace jumps off the canvas, so to speak, of what he's painting on. There's something about suffering that when grace shows up, when mercy shows up, the colors are richer, the texture is there. It seems to be a bit of a reality, but also beautiful at the same time. There's just something about the backdrop of suffering that causes what's painted on top of it, namely grace, that causes it to the world to be more beautiful than if it was just flat. If it was just some normal medium, if it was just some daily, like a chalkboard or a whiteboard and simply a drawing is made and it's done and you can just erase it and start over the next day, there's something unique about the time that it takes to go through suffering and then God do a work in the lives of people. And what he ends up showing the world is something that just doesn't look the same unless it is painted on top of a suffering people. Now, let me remind you, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean it is your lot in life to suffer a long time or to suffer extremely painfully for a short time. We've seen in our text that it is very clear that if the Lord wills that we would suffer, we would go through it. And it, namely, specifically, it is talking about righteous suffering. It's talking about suffering for the sake of living like a Christian. The lost world doesn't like it, and so they revile you. They make fun of you at school, or they give you a hard time at work, or maybe you even lose a position out to someone else because you're just not playing that game that really has to do with perhaps a lack of ethics, massaging the books. Whatever the case is, there is a measure of suffering that sometimes the Lord does simply allow us to go through. Now, I will say this, that even though Peter is not about the suffering that we might associate with things like having cancer or other things that, again, are... Um, you know, they're not at the cause of simply us being Christian. God's just simply seen fit to allow us to be afflicted, so to speak, with an injury or some kind of illness. But I do think the principles still would apply for the most part. But I still want to stay faithful to the context. So we're still talking about suffering before the world, living rightly as Christians. But I just want you to see that what you're going to see, or at least what I hope you see in this text today, is the beauty that is put on display on the canvas of suffering as God then paints grace on us, that I hope what you'll see is this, is that there, is, there really are two things at play in the grace of God up against suffering as he is going to present it in verses 7 through 11, and that is this. That first of all, that we are encouraged to persevere in living a gracious life. And I think you'll see what the motivation is for that in just a second. That we're encouraged to do that. But that we're not just encouraged to do that, in our, in our encouragement to, in how we endure, we also give the opportunity in the midst of suffering, basically like we talked about last week, not to waste it. So not only will our text, I think, give us what we need to think about enduring for the long haul difficulty and even how to do that, but I also think it will give you kind of this motivation, so to speak, of, of understanding that in the middle of it, in the middle of it, like right now, in the here and now, to take advantage of and, and trust when it hurts the most, when you're not used to it. 
to trust the intensity and the beautification of the gospel that's going on as God is shaping you through these events. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The first thing I want to share with you out of verse 7 is simply this, that suffering happens in real time, but not for all time. And this is, I think, the motivational aspect of how to endure for the long haul. And that's basically understanding that the end of all things is at hand. That's what he says in verse 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So in order for us to think rightly, to see the beauty of what God's doing, to also know how to endure suffering, we're given a couple of handles here just to how we should be thinking about our difficulty. Now, when you think about how you think about suffering, too often we are spending our time thinking about why we are suffering. Now, again, if you're suffering as a result of sin, just take it for what it is, either discipline or just simply the consequence for what you've done, ask forgiveness and or write the thing. But too often, or very often, we actually have measures of suffering where we just don't know the cause. I don't know that we should spend so much time wondering about what the causality is, simply understanding what God's purpose is. And what God wants us to do is to understand, look, first of all, the end of all things is at hand. Whatever you're going through, you may feel like is a waste of time, but it's actually part of how God is redeeming time so that the beautification of the gospel out of your life is seen more brightly, more intensely. You will be able to share. There are many people who can share a testimony like this, that once they went through suffering, the things that the Lord did in that suffering, both for them personally and also in the lives of other people, they wouldn't wish it again, but at the same time, there's just no other backdrop for how much the gospel went forth to minister to them or to be a witness to other people than due to their own struggles and difficulty and suffering. The first thing he tells us to do essentially is to think clearly. So suffering happens in real time, but not for all time. And so the first thing we need to think about is we just need to be self-controlled. And the interesting thing about this, this word is this is not the word that you have normally for self-control. In fact, Peter uses this word over in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 6, when he's giving a list of things to you should add to, your, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. And then he says, add to knowledge self-control. That's in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. But that word for self-control actually is the self-control that has to do with controlling your physical appetites. Normally, it has to do with things like sexuality, gluttony, things like that. It has to do with things that relate to your physical desires. But this particular word for self-control actually has to do with thinking clear-headedly. It's basically controlling where your mind goes 
having self-control over your thoughts. Now, we live in a day and age when we're not necessarily encouraged to have self-control of our thoughts. In fact, we're almost encouraged to anything that comes across our minds is valid. This is where, over time, you'll hear me say things like, stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. Our minds will tell us words, and if we're not careful, and those go unfiltered or uncontrolled, then how we feel in response to something ends up dictating our response to it or our reaction to it moving forward. But what we have to do is stop and remind ourselves of truth. This doesn't mean that feeling is invalid. It doesn't mean that we are to become stoic and to ignore emotion. It simply means that we are to pause long enough to get control of what we're thinking in the midst of suffering and to think about what is true, not just how we feel about it. It is controlling, having discipline of the mind. But the interesting thing too about him saying this in, related, in relationship to the end of all things is at hand is that the end of all things is not just simply the clock winding down. It also has to do with fulfillment of purpose or consummation. It has to do with completion. It has to do with God's plan. Again, he's mentioned already, if it be the Lord's will that you have to suffer particular or various types of trials, that we understand that the end of all things is at hand. So when the clock winds down, we have to also trust that our sovereign God is still in control and has a plan for how he, his economy is certainly different than ours and how he dispenses with his people for the sake of his glory, verse 11, is completely in God's purview and in a sense that we submit to that. As difficult as a providence as suffering can be, we simply say, this is part of God's economy. Whatever I'm going through, as the clock is winding down, God also has a purpose that's coming to completion. And as Peter will mention that at the end of, of his second letter, knowing that there is a full number of those that will be coming in before the Lord returns and exacts judgment, Sometimes he chooses for that megaphone of the gospel to come through your pain and your suffering. We have to trust that it's not just time winding down, but it's also God's purpose coming to completion. And we have to think clearly about this. This should encourage more faithful endurance on our part that we have this deep-seated trust. We've started to tell ourselves, okay, look, we're not fatalists. We still have decisions to make. But at the same time, we do trust God's sovereign plan and work. That he's working all things out. Yes, for the good of those who love him, but also for his glory to be seen by those who hate him still. So as we have controlled thinking, it literally means that you are not deluded. You're not overrun with emotion, but you're thinking clearly about what is true. And think about how, what a tough battle that is when you are going through real pain and difficulty. And go back and think of some of the illustrative examples we've been given in the home. You could be struggling in a marriage where one is a believer and one is not. You could be struggling in a workplace where you are a believer, but the one you're submitting to is not. You could be a citizen in a country of a tyrant or a dictator. And you are called to submit unless they are calling you to some kind of sin. 
And certainly we would say that what Putin is doing would be sinful in the killing and the destroying of people. And so it's, it's actually good and right for them, the church, to come to some kind of rebellion. It's a different thing when you don't like policies, but those policies are going, again, according to just the laws. Basically, they're not breaking the laws in order to get their team to win. They're just simply doing it. You just don't like it. But we still pray and we still submit to authorities, but it's still a measure, a type of suffering for the Christian church. Different examples in your community, in your life. And yet we are called to think clearly, not respond emotionally, but to think clearly about these things. But then he goes on and says this other phrase of being sober-minded. So be self-controlled, have disciplined thinking, be sober-minded. What this really means is in light of you being, and I will say this, that when you have a conjunction in, in Greek like and, it is a very strong conjunction. You know, for us, we're pretty casual, if not lazy sometimes with our speech. And we could say and, and whatever is after and is completely disconnected. But that's not the case, not with God's word and really not for their culture in speaking Greek. And so these are actually tightly wound together to think disciplined clearly, but also then sober-minded means to think circumspectly. So if you're thinking rightly, then it also means, yes, there, don't, don't get me wrong, to, to hear sober-minded, there certainly is here the idea of not being drunk, that you're not influenced, that there's not a drunkenness you're not in a stupor when it comes to your thinking. But that also can be influenced by things other than just alcohol. You can continue to feed yourself. If you are undisciplined in your thinking, the first part, self-control, and you're just responding emotionally, you can feed yourself what your emotions are craving. And this is why some people need to get off cable news all the time because they're just listening to a particular voice that's just feeding and fueling their emotional responses to suffering and difficulty. And what that's doing is actually creating a drunkenness and you're not able to think clearly really at all about particularly significant matters. And you will invariably think of something lesser than the kingdom of heaven in the process. And I think this is very much the source of where some churches do get very messed up in our culture today in our political landscape. We have to think circumspectly. We have to think in terms of eternality. We have to think in terms of there is an inheritance that regardless of where a person stands in policy, regardless of how much a person's against me at work, or regardless of how much I have to live through difficulty in my own house, regardless of that, this person is a soul and eternity is at stake. To think circumspectly means you are thinking Rightly, as God applies God truth to all things around you, you have to discipline your thinking not to be influenced by what you feel and to think undiluted thoughts about what truth is and then focus your thinking on what actually is going on around you. And inevitably, for the Christian, that means you are thinking loftier, higher thoughts than just the circumstance. You're thinking of it as an opportunity to show grace when your, your gut kind of wants to just be angry or to endure a little bit longer because it may earn you the right not to share in the vitriol that's going on in the office against managers or whoever, but that they see something different in you when you think this way and then therefore respond this way, you're actually looking around you and realizing you know, short-term wins are not worth losing long-term or eternal opportunities to share the gospel. This comes down to even 
the jabs that we might make on Facebook or Twitter, unless you're anonymous, but then God sees, okay? If I have to give you that guilt, God knows you. God knows you. Um, to understand that how we respond to these things could cost us something greater. If we're not thinking circumspectly, we will think short-term. And again, too much of this is going into short-term wins, which are always earthly, but we end up having long-term losses. And invariably, that too often is you lose the opportunity just to even share Christ with your Democratic friend from high school. Is it really worth the vitriol? Is it worth the short-term win? This, endure, this, this promotes and encourages endurance. But well, here's a really interesting point about this because Peter has mentioned this before. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 9, just flip back a page, and you see that when he's talking about, he says, in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. And then prior to that, when you go prior to um, in dealing with authorities, and he speaks about how husbands are to respond, how husbands respond in verse 7. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So whether you are blessing, and actually I read the blessing one because blessing is tied to actually praying that others would have favor with God. And in verses 7 and 8, he's speaking about your prayers to the Lord could be hindered by not treating your wife with respect and honor. And here in our text, Peter says that in verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And as we mentioned before, I'm just not sure how aggressive we are in being strategic to protect our prayer lives. I would say for most of us, and I would not be, uh, I would be included in this, that for most of us, we're just struggling to just argue that we have time to pray or that it's hard to find time to pray or the focus to pray, to pray for any length of time. Our attention spans are very brief. But at least three times in this letter, Peter has said that we are to act a certain way, behave a certain way, think a certain way, because prayer is that important. So, if we put it in the bigger picture here, that if we are to understand that suffering happens in real time, but not for all time, the way that we're going to have that driven down into us is to think clearly, to have disciplined thinking, that we're going to think circumspectly, we're going to see that God is applied to all the circumstance that's around us, and that requires disciplined thinking. But all this is so that we are thinking prayerfully. We're thinking thoughts of, like he said before, blessing those who are reviling us. When you think like this, you can actually pray for their souls. And you can pray also for your own responses and endurance. That's what's going to help you endure rightly over the long haul when you suffer. But again, like I said before, even though Peter isn't speaking about suffering through cancer or whatever, certainly these principles would apply. Through other types of pain and difficulty, you certainly could take these principles of having disciplined thinking and not responding, just simply listening to your emotional responses, but stopping and listening and thinking about truth. And then looking at circumspectly, looking at all those that's affecting around you of what you're going through, that people are watching 
And again, that's not to put on some kind of hypocritical face. It's just to understand that your response actually is a testimony. But then to also think prayerfully that all of this is so that we are essentially clear-headed enough to engage with our God in conversation for both our own souls, but also for the souls of others. That suffering, it happens in real time, but it doesn't happen for all time. Verses 8 and 9, suffering causes real pain to real people. So if suffering happens in real time, but not for all time, we do need to understand that when it's happening in time, that it's happening with a gritty reality. There is real pain, real hurt going on with actual real people. This is not philosophic. This is flesh and blood people right around you. For a few years during our hiatus in ministry, I spent a few years in uh, sales for Apple. And one of the things that they would do a lot in training was talking about empathy. And that empathy had to do with, as you are selling, whether I spent some time in the business sales, but also regular consumer sales. And in that, they would teach you, look, be patient, or especially with with, uh, customer support to be really patient because you don't know what someone has gone through. And there was something about that and they actually drilled that in. There was multiple weeks of training we had to go through in order to um, kind of sell in the way that Apple wanted us to sell, both the good and the bad. But I really, that one really stuck with me because I've tried to share that even with my kids as as they've started into the workplace a little bit here and there is look, be patient. You do not know what a person is bringing into the room. You don't know what they've gone through that day. To think circumspectly and prayerfully can often help attach you to reality, which is you don't know when you are going to be facing someone that is actually going through real pain and real suffering. These are real flesh and blood people. And again, I think this is part of the complete disregard that we have seen happen Uh, because of the social media age is that somehow we have dehumanized the human element in our conflicts. To understand that suffering causes real pain to real people and to also embrace that that is true, Peter encourages a couple of things. He says this in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Let's just deal with that verse. The first thing I would say that in light of real pain happening to real people is to do this, is to love sacrificially. Determine that you are going to love sacrificially. The word here for loving is agape. It is that God type sacrificial, expecting nothing in return kind of love. People are going through real pain and real hurt and all they need to know oftentimes is that you love them and you are there for them. But oftentimes that's what you also have to submit and allow people to share with you in your life. A lot of us like to be very private in our hurt and our pain. But we're part of one another, guys. And this doesn't mean you have to step out of your personality, but you do need to understand you are not called to go through anything alone. You are to share it with the body of Christ. And in this, then you, in sharing that, understanding that there is a sacrificial love that goes on here, but he, he describes it. There's some adverbs are going on here in this description that helps shape this when he says keep loving okay that I love Jaron's it just keeps you know the the perpetual active always going on kind of thing there's a, a progressive aspect to this keep loving one another but he says earnestly 
This literally means stretched out. Stretch out your love for others. Now, I think that's significant because in a minute when he talks about hospitality without grumbling, I think there's something to this because too often we kind of have this uh, one-off mentality when it comes to our service or our love for others. Like if I made my casserole and I, and I, I was on a meal train, I gave my, you know, that's my loving act. Whew, love's over. <laughs> you know, hospitality's done too often. But we need to understand this is a long-term, again, real pain, real people This is perpetual, and people by nature, at least internally, are eternal. Stretch out your love for one another, and let pain, let suffering be a reminder to do just that, and also to ask for that, to love sacrificially. Don't be afraid to ask people to serve and to help you because you're really going through it. Earnestly. We are to do this. Because he says, then love covers a multitude of sins. This doesn't mean that if you love someone, you can actually then save them by loving them well. That's not what this means. Because that's not found. Remember, we talked about that difficult passage a few weeks back. We talked about a little bit about hermeneutics. Is that you look at the context right around that verse. And then you look at that chapter. You look at that book. Maybe you look at the testament or that genre of scripture. Then you look at the whole scripture. You just keep going out and out in these circles to interpret. Let scripture interpret scripture. Nowhere else in the scriptures are we going to find that loving someone hard enough can somehow save them for eternity. So it obviously doesn't mean that. In fact, what I think it means is closer to what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, I think there is a little bit of a connection between this and 1 Corinthians because he also mentions spiritual gifts in a minute, which would also be 1 Corinthians, but chapter 12. So when Paul says that love keeps no record of wrong, love, true love does not, I had to say true love. For those of you who love Princess Bride, it's just right there and I just won't be able to get it out now. My kids want me to say that at some of their weddings. Love, twoo, love. Okay, we'll go on now. Um, if you haven't seen Princess Bride, I actually do recommend that movie. So that would help your soul. <laughs> now, but what I do want you to understand about this is that when you understand the nature of love, it, what it means is you're not simply keeping, you're not looking to find fault with other people. It doesn't mean they're not sinners. And it actually doesn't mean that you're not helping address sin that's in other people's lives. It doesn't mean you're just ignoring sin. But simply when it says it covers a multitude of sins is that it overlooks the fault for the sake of the person. You know, you've heard the phrase, love the sinner but hate the sin. I had to make sure I got that right. And there is most, mostly there is truth of that. I guess it all comes down to how you interpret some of those aspects. But overall, that is true. We need to make sure we're humanizing when we love other people that we're not looking for faults. We're not just identifying where they are not measuring up. And again, it doesn't mean there's not rebuke. We know that to be a loving act. But I will tell you this. People that are regularly saying, well, the most loving thing you can do is correct someone. And that's pretty much all they do. I promise you, they are not loving people. The tenor of your interaction with someone should not be fault finding and correction. And then you just sweep it under the rug of, well, I'm just being loving because truth is really loving. Well, I mean, there's some truth to that. But if that is literally what dictates how you are interacting with someone all the time, I promise you that that is not love. 
So it means that you're not focused on the faults, the downsides of another person while you're helping deal with their pain. Love sacrificially. Verse 9 goes into, though, what, what I would say is extend generosity. So if we're going to understand that real pain happens to real people, one of the things we can do to both remember that fact, but also then help alleviate that pain is to love sacrificially and extend generosity. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This simply is being a generous person, generous with your goods, generous with your home, generous with your time, being a hospitable person without grumbling. So if, Lord willing, we move back to small groups, uh, some small groups, uh, home groups in the fall, if we do that, then as we start to talk even more about hospitality, then, you know, have a cookie. nice. But even then, even if you're nice when you offer a cookie to a guest or open that door to that home, or even if you're part of our welcome team here. It's so cold. It is cold. You just want to watch the grumbling because too often what we understand is hospitality, actually generosity, extends from something deep. It extends from something internal and then becomes external. And for, for, whatever, for whatever it's worth, people can sense this. So you can actually walk through the acts of being hospitable, but people aren't necessarily going to see you or feel that you are a friendly person. Again, what is this? For the church, so for instance, one of the reasons that we have a welcome team and, and when the weather warms up, we'll have more people outside and in the parking lots helping people in these different things. The reason we do that, the reason that Phil spends so much time plowing our parking lot, and Evan usually helps with that, but Evan Slack this week, he's actually doing a wrestling match, doing some coaching, so he's gone this weekend. But people do this because what are we doing? We're trying to literally, now for them it's literal, for us with hospitality it's a little more figurative, but we're trying to clear a path so that people hear the gospel. And if they are offended, it should not be because we're not friendly. It should not be because our coffee is terrible. It should not be because we have a, a really dilapidated building. It should only be because they hear the gospel, it confronts their sin, and they walk away because they're not willing to turn to a gracious, loving, alive Savior. Be hospitable and don't grumble about it because we're making paths for people. And again, think about the texture on that canvas. If you're suffering... This isn't just about how you minister to suffering people. If you're suffering and you turn around and you're loving people sacrificially, do you know people like this? You feel like they're one-uppers, really. They're hurting, they're really going through it, and they're still loving better than you are, and you're not even hurting that much. Those people annoy me sometimes because that means they have lots of reasons not to be really loving, and they're loving like really, really well. Would you stop it? Because you're making me look bad. But what a powerful testimony it is when people who are going through suffering are sacrificially loving other people. I have a sister like this. Or what if they're showing hospitality and they can barely 
barely just make it in their own house because of what they're going through or the suffering that they're going through or the difficulty in their marriage. And yet they are constantly, regularly welcoming, inviting people in, whether physically to their home or just into their lives. That's that canvas with that painting of grace. It's more, it's more vibrant. It pops. It's got texture. It's got depth. Because there's no other reason for beauty to come from those ashes but the grace of God. The third and last thing in verses 10 and 11 is this. Suffering creates real opportunity to be a real church. So these aren't just individual situations where there's the canvas of suffering and then grace is painted on top of that and you still as a suffering person show hospitality and show love. Or like I said, if you are up against someone or, showing, or you're doing ministry or life with someone who's suffering, show them, you know, sacrificial love. Show them hospitality, absolutely. But this is also corporately for the church. Verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Suffering creates real opportunity to be the real church. There's something purifying, almost cathartic, when we go through suffering I think we'll see this in the testimony of what's going on with many of the church in Ukraine and even faithful believers in Russia who are trying to, even in a civil way, do opposition to what's going on with the war. That in that backdrop, they are going to suffer. But there will be something purifying about this for the church. There will be something clarifying about mission for the church because it is certainly different than what we've experienced with COVID, but at the same time, I think that the principles apply even to something like that. It is something that affects everyone and it has forced churches all over the place to evaluate what is the nature of church. Do we really have to stop caring for one another just because we're not able to see one another as readily? And certainly we need to in a sense, do what we can to try to be with one another. And for me, that's, pers- you know, for me, that's not, uh, you know, crying out against government mandates or whatever, honestly, as much as just, look, if it means meeting in a gym or outside, uh, this is why when some pastors uh, were up in arms and, and talking about being persecuted, and yet they're saying it from like San Diego, and I'm going, come on, just go outside. I mean, you have like 98% of the year is sunny and there's no rain. Basically, if it's important for us to be together, and it is, you cannot displace the flesh and blood being together when it comes to the body of Christ. And you know what? Just for the sake of that, let's be together and let's do it however, whatever it takes for us to be together. Because what ends up happening, if we just are griping about something, that becomes our unifying factor. And that's a really ugly church in the long haul. But we have a chance then to see the purity of it. We have a chance to see the simplicity of it. It clarifies, again, it's kind of cathartic. And suffering can do this. He says that, that there are varied gifts. He says in verse, in, in verse 10, he says, as each has received a gift, each person, each member, each believer, as they are gathered in a local church, has a gift. And the word here is charisma. It is this grace gift. 
that's given by the Spirit of God. It is a spiritual gift that when you came to Christ, when you came to faith in Christ, he has given you some kind of spiritual gift to be used in the church to both build up the church and also promote the gospel. It is really that simple. In fact, Peter, with this moment, is capturing the clarity that suffering brings. And he simply starts to categorize gifts in two big categories. They're speaking gifts and they're serving gifts. I mean, think about church officers, for instance. You have deacons, diakonos. That word's here. That's what the serving word is. That's service. But then you have elders who are to lean into the ability to proclaim or preach the gospel. Now, I don't think he's saying there's only those who preach and then there's those who serve. I think that what Peter is saying here is that essentially, if you, and this is where I would say, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 12 and look at the list of spiritual gifts, we're not doing that. But if you did want to later today, you really could just create two columns, speaking, serving, and pretty much put all the gifts in one of those two categories. There are those who teach, who edify, who exhort, who build up, who lead, and there's others who serve. They do serve tables. They actually are doing things like service, and they are doing other things that actually give helps to other people. So he says very simply in these two simple divisions that pretty much encompass and help focus the church, look, each one of you has a gift. And it's either to proclaim some things or it is to serve in some way. It doesn't mean you can't speak then if you serve or that you can't serve. You know, there's actually some shared overlap in this. But nonetheless, you need to understand that because this is the fact and because this is the simplicity of it, that Milford Bible Church, you need to understand that those of you who are called to speak, And some of you are called to be teachers. Some of you are called to be encouragers and exhorters. Make sure you are exercising those gifts. And if you do so, do it understanding that content is more important than your personality. Because he says, for those who speak, they are speaking the oracles of God. Now, whatever else and whatever all that means, it simply means that the content of your speech should be the content of God's speech. And we have that in the word. When you encourage someone, encourage them according to the word. When you encourage someone to read a book or walk with you through a book, make sure that book is rightly directing people to the word. But even then, once they do, that they're interpreting. So you need to make sure that the authors are sound theologically. Oracles of God, this is weighty. If you have a gift that that includes speaking, whether it's teaching children or teaching women, or preaching to the body. It is God who's the content. If you're serving, you serve in such a way that is simply by the strength that God affords. Trusting that he will give you all the strength necessary. Okay, this flies in the face of God will not give you anything you can't handle. Of course he does. Of course he does. Of course, I mean, we could all, the better way to say it would be he will not give you anything that he cannot handle in and through you. I've had many things in my life that I just had no idea. Or have you ever watched someone else go through it and said, I don't know how someone gets through this. Or especially if you have encountered the death of a spouse, for instance, how do people get through it without hope in God? You have that sense, right? And that's, that's not because you have an ability. It's because the God in you has the ability through you 
to give the grace necessary to endure. Those who speak, you're speaking, and God is the content. Those who serve, God is the one who enables and gives you the strength to accomplish it. So some speak, some serve, but all are called to glorify. That's how he sums it up. In order that in everything. There's a design to this. We trust the design that God has given. In order that in everything, God may be glorified. Because that's what it's all about. So when you stand back and you look at the painting when it's finished, you just hopefully look and examine and just see, you know, at first hopefully you just, you're drawn to it because it's beautiful. And then maybe you start to see some textures or some details. And if you're actually someone who's an artist, maybe you then start to wonder how in the world did they do that? But there's this attention and then there's this question. And I think Peter very much before when he says, when people see you suffer and they see the hope that you have and they ask you a question, a reason for your hope to be ready always to make a defense for the gospel. That as people see the beauty of what God has painted in your life as a result of suffering and they see grace all over you in your speech in your love for others, in your hospitality, in how you serve the body, how you continue to know that you're part of the body of Christ, even though you're going through suffering either individually or we are all going through it corporately. Whatever the case, we trust that suffering is a canvas that God paints his grace upon that ends up showing something to the world in ways that just could not be seen as beautifully, as intensely, or as brightly in any other way with any other medium. And may we trust that. So I encourage you, the things that I've shared with you today, I hope will be, in a sense, ways that you endure. Some reasons, yes, the end of all things is at hand. But it gave, there's a lot, there were a lot of handles in the text today on how we can do this, how we can do this well, how we, we can see that grace painted on suffering so the world sees the gospel and hears it. But I also pray that in the midst of it that you are that you capture the moment, that you are encouraged, like we talked about last week in general, not to waste suffering, that you actually focus then on very specific ways that in the middle of hurting the most, you can show Christ the best. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, maybe you're suffering, but your suffering you know is not because you're following Christ. It's because you keep making choices of trying to find heaven on earth or some kind of relief to pain. And you keep doing it through sinful practices because you are a sinner by nature. If that's you, or if you're online watching and that's you, then get in touch with us. Send us an email. Or if you're here in the building, visit with one of the elders who will be available along the back of the room as you leave. Visit with one of us about what it means to follow Christ what it means to find your hope in a risen living Christ who has conquered the enemy and who will relieve your suffering one day because he's preparing a place for you to be with him. But believing that most of us are believers in this room, endure, church, but be beautiful in the process even as you suffer. 
It is something that is undeniably beautiful and the world cannot deny. God, we thank you for your truth and your word. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for the the fact that Christ has saved us, but he's also set for us an example. So Lord, I pray that some may come to faith in trusting that their suffering has been a sovereign, providential reminder of banging their heads up against a spiritual wall, realizing that they really stink at trying to be God and they need to repent and come to faith in Christ alone who has taken their sin, who has nailed their sin to the cross in his own body, who has actually died in their place, but has risen again. And I pray that they would come to faith in that for them, not just as a story, but personal. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers that we would have been equipped with something in your word to endure better and more beautifully, even as we suffer, trusting that there is something to this that is showing a world in ways that the world just would not pay attention to otherwise. And God, as we said at the very end, this clearly is not to draw attention to how how well the Christian suffers. It is to draw attention and fame to God. Your glory through the person of Christ only. So God, when I pray and ask you to glorify yourself in and through this church and all of her members, God, I understand that I very well may be praying that we suffer and that we suffer well along the way. And while I certainly don't want that for us all the time, I pray that when it does happen, God, that we show that your word is just coming alive in how we respond to these things with and for each other. For your glory and for your name's sake in Milford and beyond. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.